This morning, if you want to follow along, I just would encourage you to open your Bible to John chapter 1. If you need a Bible, um, there will be fine people in the aisles that will walk down and give you one. Uh, just raise your hand and you'll see some individuals there uh, who will hand you a Bible. John chapter 1, the Gospel of John. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. One thing I love about being a parent is watching my kids move through the stages of development, and each stage brings with it tremendous joy and excitement. My wife, Joy, and I will flood Instagram and Facebook with pictures and videos of the latest milestones because we know you love it. (laughs) These types of posts get the most likes and comments of any posts we put out there. And we parents love your comments of, cutest ever! Oh my gracious, she couldn't be more beautiful. And they are so smart. We love that. One of the most exciting stages is when your kids learn to, how to talk. And I've always longed for that moment when I could talk to my own kids, my own flesh and blood. The idea of seeing a human being with my genetic makeup mixed up with Joy's genetic makeup has always been extremely exciting. That doesn't make you uncomfortable, does it? <clears throat> But, but then to have this little genetic concoction speak to you and have a favorite color and ask you questions has been something I've looked forward to for years. And I was wide-eyed with each word that came out of the first, my firstborn's mouth, Grace. However, with this unbelievable cuteness, brings with it some more challenging scenarios, like when your kid is desperately trying to tell you something and you have no idea what they're saying to you. It sounds like gibberish, but you can see on their face that this sound means something very specific and important. For example, last Thanksgiving we were leaving my aunt's house and our two-year-old Sydney started freaking out. And was desperately trying to tell us something, but we couldn't comprehend her words. We tried to figure out what she was saying by by running through a litany of possible scenarios. Does something hurt? Do you need to go to the bathroom? Do you want mommy to hold you? Are you hungry? Do you suddenly love your your aunt so much you don't want to leave? But it was none of these things, and and so we continued to walk to our car, and she just got more and more and more upset. And when we were, we were starting to conclude that she was just, you know, tired from a busy day, the go-to for parents, when we realized we had not activated our secret weapon, Grace, our five-year-old. Grace has this uncanny ability to comprehend even the most challenging two-year-old Sydney gibberish. We turned to Grace and we asked her, what does Sydney want? And without skipping a beat, she said she wants her shoes. <laughs> My wife, Joy, and I looked at each other and sighed. Of course, she wore her special sparkly shoes, and we put them in her bag. 
She thought we were leaving her shoes in the house and was hysterically trying to notify us, but we couldn't comprehend it. The word was unclear. It was confusing. It sounded very familiar, but we couldn't grasp it. And this is much like what John is describing in chapter 1, when he says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was made flesh. The question is, what is this word? We're so used to hearing this verse. This verse is often referenced in church. It's the holy but joyful message of the incarnation and of Christmas. And we often risk just skipping over the incomprehensibility and this oddness and this almost embarrassing strangeness of the word. But John goes on to say, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The world was made through him, but the world didn't know him. He came to his own and his own didn't receive him. John is saying two things simultaneously in this prologue to his gospel. Well, actually he's saying 200 things, but let's, let's concentrate on two things. First, the incarnation of the eternal word is the event for which the entire creation had been waiting for all along. And second, that the whole creation, even extremely carefully prepared people of God themselves were quite unready for this event. Jews and Gentiles alike, hearing this strange word, are casting ancient, anxious glances at one, one another, like Joy and I when we were desperately trying to figure out what Sidney was saying. This is the puzzle of Christmas. And to get to its heart this morning... I want to show you how, how it works out in the rest of John's gospel. And to, and to this understanding, I great, I'm greatly indebted to the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. The prologue is designed to stay in the mind and the heart. This word became flesh is supposed to stay in your mind and your heart as you read the book of John. Because never again is Jesus himself referred to as the word. But we're meant to look at each scene throughout John, from the call of the first disciples and the changing of water into wine, right through his confrontation with Pilate and the crucifixion and the resurrection, and think to ourselves, this is what it looks like when the word becomes flesh. Or if you like, look at this fleshy man and learn to see the living God. But watch what happens when it plays out. He comes to his own and they don't receive him. The light shines in the darkness. And though the darkness can't overcome it, it tries as hard as it can. Jesus speaks truth. The plain and simple words like Sidney saying, shoes, shoes. And Caiaphas and Pilate, incomprehending, can't decide whether Jesus is insane or wicked or both. And they send him off to his fate. But even though Jesus is never referred to again as the word of God, you'll see that this theme comes up again and again and again with endless variations. The living word speaks living words and the reaction is the same. This is a hard word, says his followers when he tells them that he is the bread come down from heaven. What is this word? Asked the puzzled crowd in Jerusalem. My words find no place in you, says Jesus, because you can't hear it. The word I spoke will be their judge on the last day, 
He insists as the crowds reject him, and he knows his hour has come. When Pilate hears the word, says John, he's more afraid, since the word in question is Jesus' reported claim to be the Son of God. When the word speaks, they don't recognize what's being said. They can't comprehend it. And oftentimes you hear today, well, Christianity is just some ancient nonsense that worked for people back then, but it doesn't work now. No, people didn't get it then either. They heard Jesus' teachings were like, what? Eat your flesh and drink your blood? What? From day one, people didn't get it. John says in verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So why am I talking about this on the Sunday after Christmas? Why not talk about New Year's resolutions or the theology of returning your gifts or why it's absolutely normal to continue to drink eggnog until Valentine's Day? Here's why. Until we recognize this strange and dark thread running through the Gospels, we will maintain a very, very thin view of Christmas. And think that it's only about comfort and joy. And yes, there is comfort and joy. But we need to remember, it's also about incomprehension and rejection and darkness and denial and confusion and judgment. Christmas is not about the living God coming to tell us everything's all right. John's gospel isn't about Jesus speaking the truth and everyone saying, of course, Why didn't we realize it before? It's about God shining his clear, bright torch into the darkness of our world and our lives and our hearts and our imagination and the darkness not comprehending it. It's about God. God is a little child speaking the word of truth and nobody knowing what he's talking about. And you may totally relate to not understanding all this stuff that Christians talk about all the time. You may understand this incomprehension, that sense of a word being spoken from the pastor, which seems as though it ought to mean something, but it sounds like pure gibberish. And if that's where you are, the good news is that along with this theme of incomprehension, where there's there's also this theme of people hearing and receiving Jesus' words, and believing them, and discovering, as he says, that his words are spirit and life, breathing into the dry and dead pieces of our soul, and producing new life, and new birth, and new creation. John says it very clearly here. He says, as many as received him, To them, he gave the right to become God's children who were not born of human will or flesh, but of God. He also says, if you abide in my words, you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Or he says, if anyone keeps my words, that person will never see death. And he says, you already, you are already made clean by the word which I've spoken to you. I don't want to give you the wrong idea. The world doesn't divide naturally into those who can understand what Jesus is saying and those who can't. On our own, none of us can. Jesus is born into a world where everyone is deaf and blind to him in what he's saying. 
But some, in fear and trembling, allow his words to challenge and rescue and heal and transform them. And this is what Christmas offers. Not a better religion for those who already like religion, but a word. A word which is incomprehensible in our language, but which when we learn to hear, understand, and believe it, will will transform our whole self with its judgment and mercy. So, I want to make an observation about this word becoming flesh passage. And I'm going to spend the rest of my time on this this morning. John's view of the incarnation, this word becoming flesh, it strikes at the very root of the idea of God becoming human as some mistake, some category mistake. No human being could actually be divine. It's just a fairy tale with meaning. Jesus was simply a human being, however, a very, very brilliant one. He points to God, but Jesus actually isn't God. John strikes right at this belief. Because you you may have heard this on TV and in popular books and in documentaries, but, but here's what happens. If you remove the human and divine word from the center of your theology, as mysterious and incomprehensible as it is, gradually the whole thing will unravel. I think N.T. Wright says it best. All you're left with is the theological equivalent of the grin of the Cheshire cat. I think we have it here if we can pull it up. All you're left with is the theological equivalent of the grin of the Cheshire cat. A relativism whose only moral principle is that there are no moral principles. No words of judgment because nothing is really wrong except saying things are wrong. No words of mercy because... If you're all right as you are, you don't need mercy. Merely affirmation. And that's exactly where we're at right now. And John's Christmas message issues a very timely reminder to to learn or relearn the differences between mercy and affirmation. Between a Jesus who embodies and speaks God's word of judgment and grace and a homemade Self-help Jesus, who gives us good advice about discovering who we really are. This, this is a very, very relevant teaching for our church right now. Because for the past year, we've been talking about loving our neighbor. That's what we've called the Jerusalem mandate. And Jesus calls us to make disciples in Jerusalem and Judea and the ends of the earth. And we're taking Jesus seriously, Chapel Hill. And we look at our disciples... And we look at our neighborhoods as our Jerusalem, and we believe we have a mandate to make disciples of Jesus in our neighborhoods. And this is all based on this theology that we're talking about, this word becoming flesh, a theology of incarnation, being Christ to our neighbors, the word in the flesh. And one of the things that we've said over and over again is that one of our key tasks is to discern what God is already doing in our neighborhood and to join with him. I, I, I love that teaching. It's freeing. It's exciting. I'm not bringing God to my neighborhood. He's already there. He's been there since the neighborhood started. He's already on mission, and he is constantly inviting us to join him. But this became really clear to me. If you take John's message in chapter 1 very seriously, you'll discover that that, that teaching is only half the truth. And probably, probably the wrong half to start with. You see, John's theology of the incarnation 
is about God's word coming as light into darkness. As a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. As a fresh word of judgment and mercy. You, you, you might as well say that a theology of the incarnation is all about discovering what God is saying no to today. And finding out how to say it with him. And that may sound like bad news. Because most people's conception of church is a place where people say no to everything. Always. But this no is good news. God is not simply tolerating the darkness. The word becoming flesh is God saying a brilliant and bright no to the darkness. God is judging, and this is how his judging looks. He is saying, that is darkness, and you will be overcome by my light. Christmas, the word becoming flesh, is God saying no to the darkness. The darkness that kills, destroys, abuses, oppresses. Jesus is the light that overcomes this darkness. And Jesus, Jesus insists on the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been studying the last few months. You are the lights of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. We, as a church, are also called to be this light. To say no to what God is saying no to. And as we get to know our neighbors better, we're going to see things. We're going to hear things. We're going to uncover darkness. And we have a choice. Do we choose tolerance? Do we choose to stay out of people's business and let the darkness be? Or do we take the opportunity with Christ to say no to that darkness? Joy and I move into a new neighborhood this summer, and we are discovering darkness in many forms around us. And as we connect with our neighbors, it's becoming very clear that there are things holding them back. There are financial issues. There are marriage issues. There are parenting issues. And we have the opportunity as their neighbors, as followers of Christ, as word becoming flesh, to be ministers of reconciliation where there's brokenness. And to bring healing where there's pain and light to the darkness. The darkness will not understand. It will not comprehend the light. The darkness will feel threatened. The darkness will likely lash out and fight back. But when light is allowed to expose and confront and purify, then there's a chance for new life. And when we bring light, we bring way more than flimsy affirmation or tolerance. We bring mercy. But in order to bring mercy, we have to understand something. And this is a warning. Listen, my brothers and sisters of Chapel Hill, before you even dare to bring light into darkness, you need to understand your own darkness. You need to understand what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, I am the chief of sinners. Think about that phrase for a moment. I am the chief of sinners. I assume Paul understood he was bringing the light of Christ to dark places, but he also had a fundamental understanding that he was a sinner. And not just a moderate sinner, but the chief of sinners. So question, question, do you view yourself as the chief of sinners? What would it take 
for you to get there. This may not be a very Christmassy thing to do <laughs> or, or, or an exciting way to start 2015, but this might be some good homework. Go into a room, sit down, and just start listing all of your sins and failures. Get them on paper, write them down. Look at them. Feel the weight of them. And then realize you're still breathing. You are still alive. And not only that, you are not condemned. Christ does not condemn you. In fact, he loves you deeply, flaws and all. He paid the price for all those sins. Oh, what mercy has been lavished on us. So, as you bring light into dark places, remember your own darkness. Remember your own mistakes, your own failures, your own struggles. Why is this important? So that you remember the mercy of Christ over your own life. That you won't become conceited when you shine light on someone else's darkness. The hope is that you don't become some nasty, another nasty, judgmental Christian. But rather, a Christian full of light and truth and grace and mercy and compassion. Each of those things I just listed is so much more than mere tolerance or affirmation. And the model is Christ. Even though he was without sin, he showed incredible mercy and grace while he was being light and truth. He embodied that to the point that he was attractive to those who were in darkness. And I long for that. I want to be like Christ in in that way. I want to be full of mercy and grace as I bring light and truth. I love John chapter 1 verse 4. It says this, In him was life. And the life was the light of people. I want my life. I want, I'm sorry, let me say it again. I want my light. I want my light to result in life. That's a good test. As you shine your light, are you seeing more life up here? There may need to be some death along the way as you shine light. As you shine light, sometimes things need to die. But in the end, ultimately, as you shine light, is there more life? Look at the fruit of your light. It should be life. And if it's not, it's probably not the right light. Or you may be missing grace and truth and uh, grace and mercy in your delivery of it. I also love verse 16 and 17, which says this. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace. We've all received this grace. It's beautiful. The first grace was the law given through Moses. And the second was the grace and truth through Jesus Christ. A grace that leads to life. Life in abundance. An eternal kind of life. A life that's now a life based on the kingdom of God. In the first century, in the massive Roman Empire, there was a small corner of the world in and among a small, poor people group. A baby was born and they didn't comprehend him and they didn't understand him. It didn't make sense, but it was the word becoming flesh, a light shining in the darkness, saying no to the darkness. And since then, this light has spread all over the world and continues to spread and confront darkness. And this light wants to spread through you. And we need you. 
We need you to shine your light in your context, in your family, in your neighborhood. Don't simply tolerate and affirm. Yes, do that, but don't simply do that. People don't need that artificial and flimsy form of love. It's popular and it sounds good and right, but it's empty. People may not understand the lights. They may not get it right away. But shine your light. Say the truth with grace and mercy. I'd like to call the ushers forward and the worship team, and let's pray as we end our service this morning. Father in heaven, we praise you for how good you are to us, Lord. We thank you for the fruits of this last year and what you've done. We thank you for your lights, which shine so brightly, Lord. And Lord, there is darkness all around us, Lord. There's darkness in our families, in our neighborhoods. And Lord, you want to break through. You want your light to shine and expose and confront and purify so that there may be life. So Lord, we pray your will is done. We pray that life, that lights would shine brightly. That we would not get in the way of your lights, but rather reflect it and shine as well. God, I pray that as this year ends and as the new year starts, Lord, that there would be a fresh, a fresh manifestation, a fresh blessing of your light in our lives, Lord. As we take this time to be with family um, and, and, and maybe take some time off work, Lord, may we reflect on your mercy and your grace and your truth. We pray that for that healing light to come and And shine on the divisions in our hearts and the things that keep us from you, Lord. God, I pray for the heart that is skeptical this morning. The heart that does not resonate with this message. That rejects it completely, Lord. God, I pray for your revelation to be made powerful this this coming year, Lord. I pray for a new revelation. Something that breaks through the common wisdom of today. The popular teaching and the popular ethic, Lord. I pray for your authentic spirit to move in a mighty way, Lord, like it's never moved before. Lift the scales. Free those in this room today who do not know you or do not believe you exist. Remove the scales, Lord. And may it be truly from you. And may that be evidence, God. We pray that your light would shine brightly through us and in our church. We praise you for your love and your grace and and the ways that you always... um, Move in us, God, in the ways that you show your great love to us. God, help us now as we worship you, Lord, to worship in freedom. And uh, go with us, Lord, as we uh, finish out these these last few days of 2014, Lord. And, And I pray you would show us even new things yet again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.